We continue this morning in our series of sermons in the exposition of this epistle to the Hebrews, and we have come last Lord's Day to the end of chapter 8, and now uh, this morning we'll be considering that first section of chapter 9. So our text is Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 to 5, Hebrews 9, 1 to 5, which we'll consider together with the Lord's help. We've just read the whole chapter. It begins in verse 1 with these words, Then verily, the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. John Knox, the Scottish Protestant reformer, wrote a piece on true and false worship, which I actually read for the first time at age 20. It was actually in the month of May. And among other things that uh, he wrote, there was, there was one thing especially that almost instantly uh, was embedded in my memory and which I have uh, recalled and seen confirmed countless times uh, over my years of, of pastoral uh, experience. He said on the first page of that treatise, how difficult it is to pull forth from the hearts of God's people that thing wherein their opinion of holiness stands. How difficult it is to pull forth from the hearts of God's people that thing wherein their opinion of holiness stands. You can appreciate what he's saying. He's saying that there are some uh, due perhaps to longstanding tradition due to associations with, with family, due to uh, repeated practice over many years, due to the uh, emotional uh, engagements that they've experienced in a thing, though that thing is without warrant in God's word, indeed, though it may be contrary to the revealed will of God, they nevertheless associate that thing with devotion to Jesus. And all of their emotional and, and, and personal engagement to the Lord Jesus Christ is identified with that thing. And so Knox is saying, wow, it is really hard to get that kind of thing out of people's hearts. Right? We can appreciate that, that point. And it is, in, in many ways, it is part of what the Apostle Paul is facing. It's part of what Paul's facing in his dealing with the Jews regarding the Old Testament ceremonial system, ordinances, and worship. Indeed, in, in his case, it's, the complication is compounded because these ordinances were originally appointed, ordained by God himself. But nevertheless, he's wrestling with them. And the chief barrier that, that he's facing in helping these Jews come to a, a knowledge, a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, the chief barrier that he's facing is their failure to see that all of that ceremonial law and system and all of the various components that, that it consisted of, the tabernacle, the sacrifices, the priests, and all of the worship, their failure to see that all of that 
was appointed originally as types, as pictures, as symbols, as signs that were pointing forward to something else, right? They were types and therefore they were temporary. They were intended to be temporary, not, not permanent. They were shadows of the substance that was yet to come, that all of that colorful, vibrant, glorious um, detail that came with those ordinances were prefiguring, teaching them about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, who he is in his person and all that he would accomplish in his, in his work. It, that, was the barrier. that was the barrier, the failure for the Jews to see that these things were in fact types that had to give way to what is, what is real. You can think of it, I've used a number of analogies in referring to this principle in, in, in recent chapters. Another one would be the picture of scaffolding, right? We go to downtown Greenville over the last few years, I'm there every weekend, and there's just constant building that's happening. And you'll see all of this huge network of scaffolding where they're, they're putting up walls and erecting, you know, a, a tall building and so on. And we, we understand it. We appreciate the need for the scaffolding, its usefulness and so on. But we also recognize it's not there to stay. That when the building is complete and when everything is finished, it would be utter folly to leave the scaffolding up, right? It all has to be broken down and carried away in order that the building might be properly seen and used and so on. The Old Testament ceremony served as scaffolding. They were preparing the way for the coming of Christ and the glory that would be seen and found uh, in, in him. And so here we are in, in Hebrews now chapter 9. And the context, you'll remember last week we ended with verse 13 where it says, and that he saith, a new covenant, he hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Notice there in verse 13, the pronoun he. It is God himself. God himself that says what he says about this old covenant. It is God himself who hath made the first old. This is something that God has intended, God has executed, something that God himself has brought to pass. That, that the old ceremonies are superseded by that which is superior. And then you turn to chapter 9, then verily the first covenant, which is just referred to in the previous verse, had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. So we're circling back to what we saw earlier in chapter 8, where He's circling back to now say, say, we've spoken about this covenant at the end of chapter 8. Now let's remember that old covenant had ordinances of divine service. Let's think about the place of those, the significance of, of those. And so he's going to go on uh, to speak about the glory of Jesus Christ. We need to recognize at this point, I think, it's important not only to get the, the basic point that the Old Testament worship has been laid aside in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, to not make the mistake of forgetting that it is still valuable for us to study. That we who live under the new covenant and all of the glory that it brings with it still find extreme value. This is why the Lord's recorded it in the Old Testament scriptures for us to study it, to peer into it, because we ourselves are able 
to derive tremendous spiritual edification from all that those pictures prefigured. In other words, it's not good enough for me to come this morning and to say, look, those Old Testament ceremonies like the tabernacle that we see in verses 1 to 5, they pictured Christ. We say that, but it's not good enough to only say that. We also have to show the Lord Jesus Christ in them. In other words, we need to preach Christ in them. We need to preach Christ through them. And so we'll attempt with the Lord's help to do that this evening in chapter or this morning. In chapter seven and eight, we've seen the superiority of Christ's office as the great high priest. We've seen the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant. And in chapter nine, we see the superiority of his sacrifice to that of the Old Testament. So we're going to note three things this morning with the Lord's help. The first thing is holy worship on earth. So first of all, holy worship on earth. Verse one, then verily the first covenant had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. You think with me for just a moment. God created the entire cosmos, all of the heavens and all of the earth in the space of six normal days. That's familiar territory for us. But he took no less than 40 days to convey to Moses the details for making the tabernacle. That simple fact alone communicates something to us, and it should stand out to us in our own minds that God's work of redemption, God's work of salvation, and bringing men and women and boys and girls to worship him by grace is far more glorious than the work of creation. Indeed, it is the central work of creation. It is the central work of, of history itself. The worship of God is the pivotal force in framing uh, the piety as well as the theology of, of God's, God's people. And so in chapter 9, setting the stage for Christ's superior sacrifice, he begins with a, an abbreviated catalog of some of what those ordinances in the Old Testament contained, what they included. And he's, he's preparing, you can appreciate the logic that's unfolding in his argument. The Old Testament office of the priesthood has gone away. That office is gone. Therefore, the Old Testament service, the worship, the work that they did, is also gone away with them. But in verse 1, he begins by highlighting, punctuating the fact that these ordinances were not a matter of human invention. It's not like the Israelites, Moses and Aaron and others sat down and said, look, we need to worship the living and true God. What would be the most beautiful way of doing that? What would be the most spiritually meaningful way of doing that? What would be an effective way of, of communicating our worship to God? There is not one drop of creativity, human creativity, found anywhere in any detail of the tabernacle. It's not a work of human invention. We're told in this passage and many other places, it was divine service. 
And as we saw in, in Exodus 25, God brings Moses up into the mountain and he says, you create a tabernacle in every detail exactly like I tell you. You're to, you are to make the tabernacle specifically after the prescription that I am conveying to you. And so nothing was left other than God's own express will on how it would happen. But this is, this is not, to refer to it as divine service and worldly sanctuary, is not, a, is not a, therefore, a disparagement. Indeed, I think that in, in the book of Hebrews as a whole, uh, we see uh, the Lord coming to us, and he's actually magnifying something of the glory of the Old Testament ordinances and offices and so on, in order that we might see the greater glory that is accrued to the person of the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. And so here are ordinances, or as your margin says, ceremonies, rites, actions, institutions of divine service. So the first thing we see is that it's by the appointment of God, this, this holy worship that's taking place on earth, that God has given to us a biblical law that regulates his worship, that says we're only to worship God as he's appointed, as he's prescribed and sanctioned and commanded for us, that we're not to add anything or take anything away from what he has, has, has appointed to us. And it's described as, as divine service. It's actually one word in the Greek, and it's translated elsewhere in our Bibles as worship, appropriately. It can also be translated as, as worship. We're told here in verse 1 that it is a worldly sanctuary. That's obvious, an obvious reference to the tabernacle. So the tabernacle is being referred to as a worldly sanctuary, not worldly in the terms of, well, that's worldly, that's sinful, but worldly in the sense of it's of this world. It's made, as the passage goes on to say, with hands. It is a earthly, in other words, an earthly sanctuary. You compare that to What's said in verse 24, Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. And so it's called a sanctuary. This is some of the children learning Latin. You'll recognize the, the word sanctus, right? It's the word holy, the word for holy in Latin. We get lots of English words from that. Right? We'll, we'll speak of uh, sanctity, the sanctity of something, the holiness of it. Or we'll speak about uh, God's work of sanctification in the believer. We're being made more holy as we grow in grace. And so sanctuary is, is just another English way of saying the holy place. Right? It is the holy place, a worldly holy place or a holy place in this world. And so here we have holy worship that's transpiring on earth. But it is from the start to be recognized as a picture, as a symbol, right? There's a pattern here. And it's not arbitrary. It's not as if, well, you know, these various pieces are there. Could have added others, could have taken these away, or could have shaped it different, could have designed it differently. No. Why? Not just because God says so. That's true but because it is made after a pattern, that it actually reflects 
something else, something that is more real than the tabernacle. It's actually an earthly depiction of a heavenly reality. It's describing the inner sanctum, the holy place of heaven where God dwells. And so God, who, who dwells in heaven, designed this holy place, this worldly sanctuary, to look like or to be a reflection of that heavenly sanctuary. And so the heavenly is actually the more real sanctuary. It is the original after which this is designed, after which this tabernacle is merely a copy. What does that do for us? Well, it, it helps us in one important way before we pass on. And that is, it is, it is pointing us to see the unseen, right? A theme we've touched on in recent uh, weeks or months here. It is pointing us to see the unseen, that we actually look through the descriptions that were given of the tabernacle in order to behold what our physical eyes could not see, not the stuff made with hands, to see the glory of, of heaven itself. It's a window into heaven. It was that for the Jews in the Old Testament. But as we look back on it, we can still look through that window or lens ourselves to behold something of, of the heavens, though it is expired and been abrogated here. And that helps how? It helps to reinforce the heavenly orientation of New Testament worship. Why, when God came and prescribed and commanded the ordinances of the New Testament, when he gave to his church and said, worship me with these, worship me this way only, when he appointed those ordinances of preaching and singing of psalms and the supper and baptism and prayer and the reading of his word, preaching of his word, and so on. Why did he appoint these? Why is it that the New Testament is characterized by such simplicity? Why is it so spiritual, less earthy in terms of grandeur and earthly glory and so on? Because it is undermining this heavenly orientation. So I'll repeat what we saw in chapter, the beginning of chapter 8. And that is that New Testament worship transpires in the heavens themselves. Where is the New Testament sanctuary? It's not found in a church building, an auditorium like this one. The book of Hebrews makes abundantly clear that the New Testament sanctuary is the real sanctuary of heaven itself, where our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, is found and where he's carrying out his ministry on our behalf. So that everything in New Testament worship draws our heart, our minds, our affections upward into the highest heavens, not downward to look at the gaudy and glitter of gold and so on and so forth, but it's drawing our hearts upward. And that actually Christ comes by his spirit in the midst of his church and that all that's happening is taking place in the throne room of heaven itself. And so that while outwardly, you might say, the New Testament is more bare in its simplicity than the old, the fact is that it is far more, has far more splendor and glory than the old because we are brought into the heavens themselves. And so this should be reinforced and repeated and, 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 and driven into our hearts and then driven into our minds. So first of all, there's this holy worship that is described on earth. But then secondly, he turns to the details. 
And secondly, we have the holy place. For there was, in verse 2, for there was a tabernacle made, the first, wherein was the candlestick and the table and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary, or called the holy place. It could be translated. And so secondly, we have the holy place. And so he, as I said, he's providing us here with an abbreviated summary of the interior of the tabernacle, right? The interior of the tabernacle consisted of two compartments, two rooms, one that was bigger, the holy place, and one that was smaller, the most holy place, or the holiest of all, as our, as our passage says. All that's described in Exodus 25, 26, and 27. So when he says here in verse 2, for there was a tabernacle made, the first, he's talking about that first room, the first compartment, right? The first space inside the tabernacle, the, the place that you would have entered, that the priests would have entered first, which was called the sanctuary or the, the, the holy place. He's going to go on in verse 3 to speak of after the second veil, that second interior compartment or, or room. So here you have the tabernacle, right? It's 45 feet long, 15 feet wide, 15 feet high. And there's, um, there's a, a veil, a curtain at the door through which they entered into this holy place. And then there was another veil that separated that, that room from the most holy place, which only the high priest entered once, once a year. And this tabernacle was given in the days of Moses and continued until the days of Solomon. And it was only during the reign of the Solomon that the temple replaced this this tabernacle. So in other words, the tabernacle describes, and this is, I think, important to, to pick up on these details to understand the Hebrews and what follows. The tabernacle describes the period of pilgrimage, right? When the people were on the move, it was a tent that was broken down and carried by the Levites, erected when they stopped, and so on and so forth. So it was the period of pilgrimage. That's what the tabernacle was given for. Once they came to the promised land and things were consolidated and settled, then it was replaced with the temple and the tabernacle was, was no more. That's helpful in tying together underlying themes in Hebrews, which keep bringing us back, as we've seen and will see, to the picture of the believer right now en route to the heavenly city. We are in the period of pilgrimage. We are in the sojourn. We are aliens and foreigners in a strange world. The believer is en route to heaven, to glory, and so on and so forth. But it also points explicitly to Christ in his mediatorial office. Now, if you're thinking, you know, some of you are thinking to yourself, okay, we're going boom, we're right to, we're going right into a description of uh, some of the details of, of the tabernacle. But wait a second, what about the out, outer court, right? The outer court was significant. Why is the outer court not at all mentioned here, right? The outer court was open to, to all of God's people, all of, all of the Jews, right? There was no roof over it, and it was, it was walled in. And so they would come into that portion. And as you walked through the gate, the first thing you were confronted with was the brazen altar, which was in the, in the middle, right? So the first thing in terms of the theology of what God was teaching his people then and now, 
the first thing on entrance into the outer court is, I need atonement. I'm a sinner. I need a sacrifice. I need the blood to be shed. I need to be sprinkled with that blood. Right? All of which was depicting the mediator, depicting Christ who was coming. That we begin at the cross, as it were. That this is a picture of the cross. And then you had the, 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 the giant tub, if you will, that was there too. And the water with which they washed and so on and so forth. And the people stayed in that section. Only the priests went in into to the holy place. But none of that is, is mentioned here. The laver, the altar, and so on and so forth. In many ways, you know, there's several reasons that could be given. One, one possible reason is that that outer court really was reflective of Christ's earthly ministry. Things like the cross and his coming in his, in his, his humiliation and accomplishing salvation and, and so on and so forth. Whereas in many ways, the interior of the tabernacle is, as the passage says over and over, a picture of heaven. Is a picture of heaven itself, of, of Christ who has ascended into heaven and all the consequences that, that flow from that. The, the interior was the place of communion and fellowship with God and all of its various components. And so, as you'll remember, no doubt, only the priests went into this first interior room, this compartment, the holy place. And they would go in there every day. And they had work to do every day of the year in order to carry out on behalf of, of God's people. Whereas that last, that second room, was only entered by one man, whoever was high priest that year, and only on one day, the Day of Atonement. And so here you have that first room. Right, It is called, as I said, the sanctuary, the holy place, in contrast to the holiest of all or the most holy place. Look with me just briefly at, at what was included there. It says, wherein was the candlestick? Well, immediately you recognize, right, there's no windows inside the tabernacle. There's no natural light that is to be found. So this is it. All of the light that illuminated that interior space was this this candlestick it would have otherwise been dark and as we're as we're told it was elaborate it was beautiful and the entire thing was made of one solid piece of gold it was beaten of one one piece of gold so there's no joints there's no welded joints no no screws if you will golden screws even that held the thing together it was all uh, one one piece and there were lamps that were on this lampstand that were fed with with oil and that oil was lit and then the light is what provided illumination for the priests inside that room so all of this is depicting for us the lord jesus christ himself right he is the one the oil he is the one who is anointed above measure with the holy spirit right he he the spirit descends upon him he's given the fullness of the spirit in heaven which he pours out uh, upon his people and here it's not so much the emphasis doesn't fall on christ as the light of the world though that's true and very important that's not really the place of emphasis christ being a light in the world you remember in john how he says as long as i'm in the world i'm a light to, to, this, to this world. But here we're talking about inside the holy place. 
right? Not, not a light to the world, as it were, at large. It's more akin, I think, to what's described in the book of Revelation when it tells us in heaven that there is no sun and there is no moon and there are no stars, but there's also no darkness. There's no night there because the Lamb is the light and the Lamb is the glory. Right? The Lord Jesus Christ is the one who is the glory and light of, of heaven itself. And he brings that, obviously, as the light into the midst of his church so that we are, you know, the light of his countenance is lifted up upon us. We are given a place and privilege by right and so on, access into the throne room of heaven itself. And it is Christ, his countenance, that shines with light upon us. You notice that it speaks of the table and the showbread as well, the table. You immediately recognize, everyone does, I think. Table is a place for fellowship, right? Table is the place where family gathers in order to fellowship around food, have communion around food, not communion in the sense of the Lord's Supper, but personal fellowship and, and communion, same thing is true with friends, right? You have friends and you, you get together around the table in order to eat and speak with one another. And we have big feasts and they're centered around the table, you know, or family get-togethers and so on. It's a picture all over the world throughout all of time. You, you see it so vividly portrayed, um, for example, in the life of David after his beloved friend Jonathan has died, he asks the question, you know, is there any of the seed of, of Saul, of, of, of Jonathan, that, that are still alive? That can be given place at my table, right? And then we have that beautiful picture of Mephibosheth, right? There's Mephibosheth, who's lame in his feet. He's a cripple, right? He's, he's not glorious. He's not powerful. He's not beautiful. He's, he's thought of quite to, to the contrary. And there is David, and David is saying, go find Mephibosheth, for he will always eat at my table. He will always have a seat with me, fellowship with me, friendship with me, to eat from my hand, my, my resources, and so on. Well, all of this, of course, and now we're speaking especially about the table inside the holy place, depicts for us, doesn't it, the fellowship that God's people have with the Lord himself. So even in the Old Testament, there was this reinforced in the hearts and minds of God's people that God had come to dwell in the midst of his people in order that they might dwell with him, in order that they might have nearness to him, in order that they might have giving and receiving with him, fellowship and communion with him. And of course, as we come into the, the New Testament, all of this comes to its fruition. Because who is Christ? John 1 says, he is the one who came and tabernacled among us. He's the one who came and dwelt among us. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who sits at the table with sinners, publicans and prostitutes and so on, who sets forth the gospel and what does he give to us by way of New Testament ordinances? Among other things, he gives us a table, the table of the new covenant with its new covenant realities. 
The Lord gives us the Lord's Supper as an ordinance, which we're preparing for this, this upcoming week. And the Lord is saying, I come. I come to serve my people. I come to hold fellowship with them. I come in the nearest and most intimate ways to my people to have communion with them. Well, there you had it, this table. And on it, we're told, was the showbread, right? These 12 loaves. I don't have time this morning to go through details. Each of these things deserve their own sermon. Maybe when we're going through Exodus, we'll do that. But you have the 12 loaves of the showbread. It's literally, in English, we call it showbread. But in Hebrew, it's, it's bread of faces. Bread of faces. And the word face or countenance is used in Hebrew for presence. Right? So the Lord lifts up the light of his countenance upon us. Sometimes, uh, you know, even in the Psalms, it'll speak of God's presence when it's, it's literally saying face, his face is, is toward us and so on. That's the picture that's being given here of presence. And you'll notice in that passage we read from Exodus 25 and verse 30, when he speaks about the showbread, he says that these will be before me always. Those are the words. Before me, always. Reinforcing this whole concept of presence, of the Lord's presence with his people and the Lord's people present in his presence, before his, his face. Now, where do we find this more than we find it in the Lord Jesus Christ himself? Right? Christ, of course, is the bread as, as he tells us in John 6, he is the bread that comes down from heaven, right? He is the bread upon which his people feed by faith to the nourishment and satisfaction that endures forever in and for their, their souls. And so he comes and manifests his presence in his incarnation. And he continues to make known that presence even after his ascension in the sending forth of the Holy Spirit, so that he can say, wherever two or three are gathered in my name, I am in the midst of them. That the Lord is God with us. That he is forever and always in the, in the presence of his people. But that his people also live Coram Deo. They live before the face of God. His people are through, in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, enabled in their Christian pilgrimage to live and abide in the very presence of God himself. So that they are found before him always, given access to his throne always, living before him always, receiving from him always, giving of ourselves and praise and prayer and our lives and bodies as living sacrifices always. It's beautiful. It's showing us Christ. It's showing all that he's accomplished. It's showing all of the, the benefits that, that fall to, to the Lord's people. What does it tell us? It tells us that the gospel, as Isaiah says, it really is a feast of fat things, full of marrow, wine on the lees, well refined. That this gospel, this declaration that Jesus Christ is the savior of sinners, that he has come as the second person of the Godhead to assume to himself a human nature in order that he might reconcile sinners unto himself through his own sacrifice and death through his burial, resurrection, and ascension, right? This glorious news that, that God has himself provided everything and left nothing to us, 
but that it is God giving to us in grace, never us giving to him in our own merit. That he shows the initiative in sending his son and sending his spirit and sending the preaching of the gospel. It shows us that this gospel, this good news, that there is salvation for guilty, polluted and defiled sinners in all that Christ is and in all that Christ has accomplished is a feast of fat things. Enough to nourish the soul for time and eternity. To thrill our hearts. To intoxicate our minds. And to inflame our devotion to him. We who are under his gospel grace. All of our life long. The question is, have you seen it? I mean, have you seen the unseen by faith? Are you looking upon the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ in and through these things. Have you come to taste and see that the Lord is good? Have you come to taste, to feed upon the Lord Jesus Christ by faith? I mean, this is the question that searches us. Is it true that we have found ourselves accepted in Christ in the very presence of God to adore his face and to live under the light of who he is? Because the Lord's coming to you again this morning, isn't he? And he's saying, behold, my son, his word, Old Testament, New Testament, the whole top to bottom, Genesis to Revelation, preaches Christ and the gospel to us. The spirit comes along with this word in order to show us the things that belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you seen him? Have you seen him and come to him? Have you laid hold upon him by faith and said, all that Christ is, all that he's accomplished, this is all my hope. And this is all my help for time and eternity. That's where this leads us. That's where it must lead us. It reinforces, as we've seen, the simplicity, purity, spirituality of our New Testament ordinances, which are far greater, have far more heavenly splendor than these old ones. But it also reminds us, and I'll make this point briefly in light of the supper coming next, next Sabbath day. The New Testament ordinances, in terms of the two sacraments, are also signs, aren't they? Baptism and the Lord's Supper are signs. That's not all they are, but they are signs and seals of the covenant, among other things, which means that in that element of being assigned, they too are a window to another world that take us and transport us into the heavens themselves. And it's a thought for you to a morsel to chew on, among other things this week. But then thirdly, so we have we have holy worship on earth, we have the holy place, but then thirdly we have the most holy place. Verses three to five, the most holy place. And after the second veil, so you're inside the in, the first room and then there's this veil separating the second, the second compartment. After the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all, which had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded and the tables of the covenant, and over it the cherubims of glory, shadowing the mercy seat, of which we cannot now speak particularly. And so now we have the second veil. The first one is entrance into the first room. Second one, entrance into the, the second room. It was a heavy, elaborate, ornate curtain 
beautiful that separated anyone from entering or seeing inside even other than the high priest once a year. You'll notice the things that are described about it. The first thing is, it says, which had the, which had the golden censer. Now, this is interesting. In verse 2, it's describing things about the first room, and it says, wherein were these things? In verse 3, it says, or in verse 4, it says, which had the golden censer. In other words, those, those pieces of furniture in the first room, that was their proper place. But what about this? And the reason I raise it, because if you know your Bible and you know what the biblical description of the, the, um, uh, the, the most holy place, you'll recognize that the censer wasn't a permanent part of the furniture inside that second veil, was it? Not at all. In fact, you'll, you'll see, I'll give it to you. Leviticus chapter 16, verses 12 and 13, it says, And he shall take a censer full of burning coals off the fire, of the fire from off the altar, that's the golden altar inside that first room, before the Lord, and his hands, and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within the veil. And he shall put the incense upon the, upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense may cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he die not. So what's happening here? Right? We're trying to read our Bibles carefully. Every single day inside that first compartment was the golden altar, which is different from the brazen altar out in the outer court. Right? That golden altar is much smaller. And every single solitary day of the year, the priest came and stood before that golden altar, put coals of fire upon it, and offered incense upon it. They burned incense every single day. But it was only on one day a year that they took some of the coals from that altar, put it in this golden censer, and the high priest passed through the veil with the censer in his hands placing the incense on it so that the smoke would fill that room, making it difficult to see. It's dark in there anyway, not looking upon the ark. Filling it with fragrance, obviously delicious fragrance, but also smoke billowing out, rising into the sky and seen by those who, who are outside. So what's the point of, of all this? Right? You, you recognize, I hope, that that golden, ins, that golden altar is a picture of prayer. So the law says it. We sing about it in Psalm 141 where it says our, our, our prayers rise as incense before the Lord. You see it in Revelation 5 and 8 where the language is used there as well. The incense of the prayers of the saints rising before the throne of God. So the altar, as we'll see, or the, the ark, as we'll see, is a picture of the throne of God's presence. And now the picture of the prayers of God's people being offered through the intercession of the Lord Jesus Christ are presented before that throne and rising up as a sweet smelling savor before the Lord. And so the reason the altar isn't mentioned in the previous verse is because this is what's being highlighted. The golden censer, the efficacy of Christ's intercession. It's received and accepted before the Lord. All the people are doing what at this very moment? 
They're outside praying. Remember in, in the Gospel of Luke, Zacharias goes in. We're told all the people are outside. It was his turn as high priest. He goes into the most holy place. What are they doing? They're all praying because they're praying and the picture of their prayers is being presented before the throne of the Lord. This is the spiritual content underlies Christ's, the efficacy of Christ's intercession brought as a sweet smelling savor before the Lord so that the prayers of God's people, their petitions are mingled with his and his Theirs are accepted in his because his are always accepted before, before the throne. And so it's through Christ's mediation that these things take place. Think of it this way. The prayers of God's people are like arrows. I think one of the Puritans said this. The prayers of God's people are like arrows set on the bow of Christ and shot into the heavens, into the throne room. Then we have, secondly, we have the ark. We have to speed up here. It says, and the ark of the covenant overlaid round about with gold. So here's the ark. This is the most important thing, bar none. This is the central piece of furniture. This is, as you saw in Exodus 25, the first thing that was made. The ark was made first. And actually the tabernacle exists for the purpose of the ark. So the ark is the crown. The tabernacle, as chapter, Exodus 26 tells us, was built for the ark itself. So it's the greatest. And it's interesting because it's the only thing that was taken from the tabernacle into the temple. When the temple replaced the tabernacle, only the ark. That's the only piece of furniture that went into, into the temple. But we, have, we don't have enough time to go into detail on some of these things. The Bible refers to the ark sometimes as the throne, the throne of God. It's referred to at other times as the footstool of the Lord. It's referred to as the strength of the Lord and the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Testimony, and so on and so forth. It was made of shittim wood, which was a wood that does not rot, right? Incorruptible wood. And then it's overlaid inside and out with the purest of all pure gold. And... You know, understanding, if we, if we had more time to unpack the theology of this, would help you in singing the Psalms. Because, you know, for example, you come to Psalm 80, which we love. And Psalm 80 opens this way. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock, thou that dwellest between the cherubims, shine forth. Right? We, don't, we don't miss that imagery. We get it. Here is the throne. Here is where God chose to manifest his presence. Here was that earthy uh, depiction of his heavenly throne, showing his Old Testament people in signs and types and so on, that God is dwelling in the midst of his people. It was centered over this ark. And of course, you know that, as we've already referred to, Jesus Christ is the one who comes. And tabernacles are among us. God with us is seen exquisitely in the coming of Jesus Christ. There is Emmanuel, God with us. There is the word made flesh. There is the ability to behold the glory of God in the person of the only begotten Son. We're told that there is here a golden pot that had manna, right? A picture of food 
in the pilgrimage, in this period of pilgrimage. The Lord would provide for them that manna, showing that he would sustain them himself by his grace, given to them in, as free tokens of his, his mercy. And Christ, of course, is that manna which comes down from heaven. He's what nourishes the believing soul. He's what sustains us throughout our whole earthly pilgrimage. He is given by grace. He's the one who is provided from God himself. He's the heavenly substance. And if we had time, I'd go into this further. But you remember these things because you come to Revelation chapter 2. And in verse 17... It's speaking about the, 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 the reward that God gives to his New Testament church. And it says, To him that overcometh, I will give to eat of the hidden manna. Isn't that interesting? Hidden manna. Of course, because you had this golden bowl with manna in it that's hidden inside the ark, which no one can open. And the ark is placed inside the holiest place, which no one can go into, and which is filled with darkness and smoke, even when the high priest goes in there, right? The Lord is saying, I will give my people to eat of this hidden manna. And we could then launch into connecting all the dots that, that flow from this. But it, it's giving you enough to see, you know, here is the Lord coming and speaking of the glory of his son and how it would far surpass you know, to taste and see that the Lord, that is the Lord himself, is good. To feed upon him by faith. Hastening on. What else is inside the ark? Well, there's Aaron's rod that budded, blossomed. Right? The context for this is number 17. And you'll remember that this came as a result of a revolt. So Korah and company revolted against the authority of Moses and Aaron. And so what did the Lord do? He said, okay, bring 12 tribal rods and set them before me. Each rod representing one of the tribes. And the one that blossomed, budded and blossomed, was Aaron's, was the tribe of Levi. And the Lord was vindicating his own authority and vindicating the authority of those he had appointed. And and it's saying, this rod is accepted of God as the priestly tribe. Well, the Lord says, look, you take that rod that's that's budded, you stick it inside the ark as a token against the rebels, that that token would be kept up for time to come, right? Christ, his authority, the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ in the midst of his people, right? He's going to come in his earthly ministry. He's going to come to his own people. He who himself is the provision of all their salvation, and they will reject him. They will, re- they will rebel against the Lord Jesus Christ. And they will ultimately crucify him. But the rod budded and bloomed. Because the The father says, this sacrifice is accepted before me. The Lord Jesus Christ is raised from the dead. That dead looking rod is brought to life. He's raised from the dead in all of his divine power and ascends to heaven and so on. Those whom they rejected, the Lord has made his Lord and Christ, his king, that is seated upon his royal throne with all power and authority in heaven and earth. You also have the tables of the covenant in there. 
right, the, on which were written the Ten Commandments. These are preserved. They're placed inside uh, the ark. You'll remember, you know, Christ who comes, he has the law of God in his heart. We sing about it in Psalm 40. He came to do, he delights to do the Father's will. He came to do all of God's commandments, to walk in his, his law. He's made under the law. He obeys the law. He fulfills the law. And so on, the law being in his heart, the law being personified in who he is and what he's done. You have the cherubims, we're told. The cherubims of glory overshadowing uh, the mercy seat. These two depictions of angelic beings facing one another and their wings overstretching them. Remember, this is a picture of heaven. What do you know of heaven? You go to Isaiah 6. Isaiah is taken into the throne room of heaven. They're cherubim, right? You have these angelic hosts that are around the throne and they're covering themselves. And they're saying, holy, 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 and so on. You go to John and in Revelation and you have a picture, a window into heaven. What do you see? You see angelic hosts surrounding the throne and worshiping him and praising him and so on. That's the picture given with the ark over the throne, their wings outstretched, surrounding, as it were, the place of the presence of God himself. There's a mercy seat that's set on top of all of this. Literally, it's a propitiatory, we could say. If that's an English word, propitiatory, right? It's mercy seat is the idea of propitiation, of, of the satisfaction and appeasing, uh, of, of placating the wrath of God against sin. Right, that's, that's what's being depicted. It's the throne. It's the throne that God sits upon, one, one which represents sacrifice and redemption and reconciliation and satisfaction and so on. But notice here, this is not where the sacrifice is offered. The sacrifice isn't offered on the mercy seat. The sacrifice is offered out there in the outer court on the brazen altar. That's the picture of the cross. What's happening here with this mercy seat, this throne? This is where the blood is presented, not sacrificed. It's where the blood is presented. And so the blood is brought in and sprinkled upon this, this mercy seat. The efficacy of the sacrifice of Christ is being presented before the throne of God and received and accepted by him, and its enduring value continues forever. Right? The sacrifice is set forth in, in heaven, that God indeed has reconciled sinners, that his, 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 the demands of his law have been met, and so on. And now you go once again to that picture in Revelation of the, of the heavens opened, and what we find there is a lamb as if as one who had been slain. And it is Christ and his blood that is seated upon the throne and his sacrifice which is being presented before the, the presence of God and has enduring, abiding, forever relevancy, power for our souls. What a, what a beautiful thing this is. What a beautiful thing this is. Right? This is Christ's glory. This is the glory of the gospel. And what these things were only able in an extremely limited way to, like a children's picture book, depict for us. We now live under the new covenant with the ascended Christ.
in their full-blown realities. So that the throne that we bow before in prayer is this real throne, the one in heaven upon which Christ sits. There is no more shedding of blood because his sacrifice was once for all and that blood continues to testify to this very second of the fact that he has secured the totality of a free and full salvation for every last one of his believing people. We come pleading that blood. We come in prayer and say, Father, look upon thy son, seated at thy right hand. Look upon the shed blood that has been presented before the throne and grant that we would be accepted in him. Right? There is so much that we could do with that in terms of unpacking it, in terms of applying it to our practice and Christian experience that we could fill days doing so. But as the Apostle Paul says in verse 5, of which we cannot now speak particularly. Right? He's saying, in essence, everything about this Old this, this, these Old Testament ceremonies were types of Christ. Every last detail. But I'm not going to descend into the details right now. We don't need them to miss the point. Christ is our glory. He is the glory. His presence, his real presence in the midst of his assembled people is the glory of New Testament worship. God in our midst. And we brought into his midst, into the throne room of heaven itself. This ought to thrill the soul of every true Christian that he has given us the New Testament worship he has because it is unmatched, unparalleled, unsurpassable by any other mimicry that men fabricate in this world. May the Lord bless these things to our hearing. Let's stand for prayer. O oh Lord, our God in heaven, we come before that glorious throne in heaven upon which the crucified Christ who is now exalted and ascended to thy right hand sits, the right hand of the majesty on high. We come in the name of Christ. We come through the person of Christ. We come on the basis of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We come pleading all that is found in him. And, O oh Lord, we rejoice that though this old, these Old Testament ceremonies were a, a faint depiction and pattern of the real and true and heavenly sanctuary, that nevertheless our hearts are able to peer into that heavenly place, that we ourselves are able to be brought into the most holy place. We rejoice in it, O Lord. All glory, honor, and praise be unto thy great name for such rich mercies. Give us, we pray, to receive all by faith. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.